I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. Thanks, as always, to all of you who are recommending the show, leaving a five-star review, and picking up my book, Breaking the News, for everyone on your Christmas list this year. Today, we get into how the United States will play in the genocide games after all. That is the Beijing Olympics, and the Joe Biden administration is already lying about it, trying to frame it as though we are doing some sort of a boycott. We're not. Uh, Our diplomats are not invited, and our athletes will show up. NBC, Comcast, Universal will make money, and I break that all down towards the top of the show. Uh, Perhaps is this peak COVID-1984? High school hoops players are now being encouraged to wear their masks under their chin during the game. I have no clue what that does, um, but just remember your face diapers are filthy, and they're extra filthy if you're a high school hoops player. Uh, Juicy Smoulier is on trial, and his Hail Mary defense is that he's actually a victim of a reverse hoax. So the guys he may or may not have hired to carry out a hoax actually were the real hoaxers or something like that. Uh, That's his latest defense, and I share that with you as well. Hunter Biden and the big guy are getting even more honey badger on their art grift huge details and how the White House is now all of a sudden uh, cracking down on uh, people who are trying to take advantage of the system when it comes to laundering money through art. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden appears to be, you know, laundering money through art. Um, New York City is somehow getting even more authoritarian when it comes to vaccines and the coronavirus. I break that all down as well. And a new poll shows that Hispanics and Latinos don't actually like the term Latinx or Latinx, or whatever it is. They don't like it, so that is should surprise no one with a brain, yet the data is yet to come in. It is now in. Um, today is Pearl Harbor Day, uh, December 7th, the date which will live in infamy. We touch on this uh, a little bit in the show, but in a much more detail on the full broadcast, if you go to SiriusXM uh, and the SXM app, you can catch that. We spoke to historian Craig Shirley on the full three-hour show, uh, which we do not have for you in the podcast, but I do want to make a plug for that. Also, some of those themes came up throughout the broadcast as well with callers, etc., Today's guest will be Mark Meadows, who was the last chief of staff for the Trump administration and known as the Freedom Caucus congressman. And it was an interesting interview, and I'll give you some more thoughts on the interview itself uh, later on in the podcast. But uh, he's got a new book out, and it was good to speak with him because he did have a firsthand account of just about all the craziness that took place in the last year of Donald Trump's White House. But first... I want to talk to you about an important sponsor that we have, which is AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, a conservative advocacy and benefits organization with more than 2 million members and counting. AMAC has become one of the most significant conservative organizations in the country. Joining AMAC gives you access to money-saving benefits, cutting-edge news, and a magazine full of insightful takes on today's most important issues. But most importantly, AMAC is working tirelessly to preserve the freedom secured by our Constitution. With a full-time presence on Capitol Hill, AMAC is pushing back against the efforts to defund our police, weaken our borders, and replace your freedom with government controls. Stand with me and over 2 million patriots by joining right now at amac.us forward slash Breitbart. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Breitbart. The benefits are great, but the cause is greater. Join today at amac.us forward slash Breitbart. All 
right, so let's get into the news. And the first thing that I want to bring up today is something inevitable yet disgraceful nonetheless, which is that the White House has confirmed that the United States will play in the genocide games, which will be the Olympics in China, which is also a boon to Joe Biden's pals at NBC Comcast Universal, which have uh, the TV rights. So they will be able to make money off of the Olympics where the entire world, or at least the vast majority of the world, I'll be curious to see if it's the entire world, uh, legitimizes the evil regime in China, the communist regime, and uh, Joe Biden in the United States of America will be a part of it. And mark my words, as I've been saying, and I will continue to say it, if we continue to do this, if we continue to treat China as if they are not human rights abusers and not people who have slavery and not people who have unfree press and not people who do or- organ harvesting and not people who, are, who would like to see America destroyed, then uh, we will look back on this in decades and either we will be a part of the one China world or we will regret the way we behaved. It will be a stain and Joe Biden has advanced it immeasurably with this move. And anyone who supports this move, I think, uh, unfortunately, you're wildly misguided on this. So another one of those uh, things that you see whenever it appears Democrats president, which is something that's so uh, uh, almost unfathomably outrageous. And yet there is a very little recourse, which is why elections have consequences. Um, but yes, the U.S. will play and will also pay another way, I'm sure. So the big guy giving another big gift to China. And then, of course, I need to mention this over and over again. The Biden family makes money off of China. They are making money off of China right now. They have billion-dollar deals, at least one of them that we know of, thanks to the reporting of Peter Schweitzer, that were done specifically because their name is Biden. And um, even the big guy is getting a cut of that. So as far as we know, Joe Biden has cut in on the stuff. And we don't know about it exactly, but that is what all of the... All of the information we've been able to glean from what we know about the Biden family is that they have sweetheart deals from China where they make money off of China and they benefit from America's weak policy towards China. And I am also interested to note how the Biden administration has framed this to the public, as I've noted, like all administrations, but somehow even worse, the Biden administration is does lie effortlessly. I want to play this clip. This is 4A. This is Jen Psaki, the White House Press Secretary, Mr. Paul Rollett. The Biden administration will not send any diplomatic or official representation to the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics and Paralympic Games, given the PRC's ongoing genocide and crimes against uh, humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. The athletes on Team USA have our full support. We will be behind them 100% as we cheer them on from home. We will not be contributing to the fanfare of the games. U.S. diplomatic or official representation would treat these games as business as usual in the face of the PRC's egregious human rights abuses and atrocities in Xinjiang, and we simply can't do that. As the President has told President Xi, standing up for human rights is in the DNA of Americans. Uh, We have a fundamental commitment to promoting human rights, and we feel strongly in our position, and we will continue to take actions to advance human rights in China and beyond. The dishonesty in this is nearly 100%. It's nearly, it is nearly all encompassing. First of all, this is the most important point in this. We're not invited. Our diplomats are not invited to the games. So this is the equivalent of you saying you're boycotting, you know, the homecoming dance, even though you weren't invited, you didn't have a ticket, you don't have a date. So you're not really boycotting, are you? You're not invited. So we're not invited. 
Our diplomats are not invited. So how are we boycotting? This is Joe Biden's, you can't fire me, I quit, moment. It's meaningless. Not to mention, what does that mean that there won't be, you know, you won't see Camelia Harris and Doug Emhoff uh, and their uh, uh, model, strange model daughter in the audience? Like, that's it? That's the boycott? All of our athletes are going to be there competing, dignifying the whole thing? But we need to, we're going to make a big deal that, you know, Steny Hoyer won't be there watching on, looking on. Jerry Nadler won't be there with a pack of hot dogs. I don't know if they have a lot of hot dogs in Beijing. I've been to Beijing for a couple of days. I did not have hot dogs uh, while I was there. Maybe I didn't look hard enough. You have to let it linger in the air for a moment to see something so dishonest. It is an, an impossible to understate what a lie Jen Psaki has just read. Um, a couple of things to note in that statement. She said that this was our, our example of how America is known for standing up for human rights. Again, the idea that standing up for human rights now is defined by Nadler doesn't go what all the athletes do. That's standing up for human rights. That's bold. Reminds me of all those civil rights leaders and all of those who fought the Civil War and all the people that, that we revere as standing up for human rights. People who beat the Nazis. The people who beat the communists. That's us. We can't even say communist. Remember, she refers them as the PRC, I guess People's Republic of China, not the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, which is really what's in charge. So uh, it, it's heartbreaking for a country. It's, it's hilarious inadvertently, but it's also heartbreaking that these are the people in charge. So um, uh, we'll, we'll go on from there, and um, we will keep an eye on it for you if anything changes here. But I just don't see this as a, it's something irresponsible media would be just windmill dunking on the Bidens constantly over this. But we're not. We don't do that. The story that's been most popular at Breitbart, which has been kind of fun, is that the Juicy Smollier trial, which is going on, um, the judge denied a motion for Jesse Smollett, the actor from the show Empire, who has claimed that the brothers, who everyone thinks were hired by Smollett to have a hoax hate crime, where he was blaming Trump's America. Now, Smollett's Hail Mary defense, and he took the stand to talk about this, is that it was actually the actors that planned the hoax. So these two Nigerian brothers, they were the ones who planned the hoax, so not Smollett himself. I think it's a little far-fetched. Um, but he didn't orchestrate the fake hate crime. It was the MAGA uh, brothers who were actually not MAGA brothers. They had a relationship with Smollett. And one of them, apparently, according to Smollett's own testimony, had a cocaine-filled gay bathhouse escapade with Smollett himself. So it looks like they knew, they knew each other pretty well. Sorry for those of you who think it's too early to talk about cocaine-filled bathhouse escapades. My apologies in a way, but in a way, I'm not, I'm not apologizing. Get you some grit early in the morning. Reading some of the transcript, I even like reading the AP sometimes when these the stories are so absurd, and then you read the AP, the driest uh, way to describe it. Um, Smollett was asked if he had planned a hoax. No, Smollett said, I'm reading from the AP at this point, there was no hoax, absolutely not. When asked if he gave the Osundairo brothers $100 to pay for supplies of the fake attack, Smollett told uh, ju jurors he had not done so. He had returned from a trip and was walking home after buying a sandwich at around 2 a.m. Remember, this is one of the coldest nights in the history of Chicago. 
January the 29th, 2019, 2 a.m., when someone yelled a racist homophobic remark, Small said he turned around to confront the person who he said towered over him. Smollett demonstrated how the man w- walked quickly towards him, pointed to his left temple to show uh, where the man had hit him. Quote, I would like to think I landed a punch. Can't remember, I guess. But I don't know if I landed it, close quote, Smollett said. He'd slipped and then tussled on the ground for up to 30 seconds. Smollett said he saw a second person who he believed kicked him on the side as that person ran away. Smollett said he assumed the person who attacked him was white because he used a racial shirt, a slur, and shouted, MAGA country. <laughs> so ridiculous. Uh, a reference to Trump's Make America Great Again slogan. The brothers M. Abinbola and Olembingo Osundairo, who were black, testified last week that Smollett instructed them to yell, quote, this is MAGA country during the fake assault. All right. It's so good. It's so good. Um, Small also testified, I'm a black man in America. I do not trust the police. I am also a well-known figure at the time, and I'm openly gay man. So it's, he's the ultimate victim. I will evolve that for you. I, I don't have any blinding insights to this other than he does he, the, the absurdity of it that he is basically accusing the brothers who he almost certainly hired and testified that were hired by him um, where they were the ones who were really the hoaxers after all. All right, speaking of absurd and hilarious stuff, the White House has flagged the art industry for money laundering. You see any irony there? The art industry for money laundering? You know there's an amateur artist in the first family who sells art to anonymous buyers, some of them for overseas. And you might assume that that person could be laundering money, at least to some degree. You might. Of course, I'm talking about Hunter. Hunter selling art for bags and bags of cash to anonymous buyers, assuming some of them are foreign for his art where he uh, paints watercolors and then blows the watercolors with a straw all over a canvas. Charges untold amounts of money, has big uh, parties, galas, often maskless, um, in Los Angeles and New York. That that couldn't be laundering, but it's the rest of the art industry. Those are the real bad guys. It is once the media allowed Hunter to get away with the laptop, and they did, then you knew it was going to be game on, and now it is game on times a thousand. And I have to say that, that as I've been saying over and over again, I think I was the first person to have this take. I, I I'm now officially in the Hunter Biden is a genius camp. That he figured out some rules. If you're a Biden, the media doesn't care if you're a bad guy. You can do whatever you want and you can get away with it. And so he took full advantage. And if you're a powerful family in America, that it is an oligarchy. You have a different set of laws. You don't have to abide by the laws and you can go bag cash. So he's walking around bagging cash and a lot of the people on the right are giving, uh, you know, doing some low rent mockery of Hunter, which is fun. But in the meantime, he's bagging cash, living his best life, going surfing, uh, having all the women he wants. You know, he's got a huge fan base at this point, too. There was a, a clip that was going around where uh, Jen Psaki was squirming at the press briefing when asked if uh, the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation, which, of course, she referred to it in October of 2020, two weeks before the election. Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former Intel officers say. Direct tweet. Has not retracted it. All of those Intel officers were liars. 
And there's been, you know, thousands and thousands of intel officers. So Politico found 50 to lie because they wanted to get Trump out and justify the means. And remember, they put Hunter in the DNC. They didn't even put Pencil Neck in the DNC. Adam Schiff, who was their hero for years uh, because of the Russian collusion hoax, he wasn't even, he, he didn't get a major slot. If he was there, he was there for, you know, a split second. But they put Hunter in front and center. Um, it's interesting because I get that the nature of being a flack, the nature of being a spokesperson is you have to do what's best for your boss's interest. But it is amazing. Uh, Saki is just a, a ridiculous liar, even in a job that requires you to, you know, at least stretch the truth and spin the truth. That this is still up there. This is, she is the spokesperson for the White House, and she's got a tweet that says that Hunter Biden, the laptop, which was not Russian nor disinformation, nor was it even hacked. She just calls it Russian disinfo. And still, she still has it up there. Um, but maybe she's not doesn't even know she's lying because she's not a bright person. And you could see this when she was mocking and her tone. I wish we the clip. I don't think we do. But um, the, the, he was mocking yesterday the free at home COVID testing idea that some people have been proposing is that if we just all have tests at home of reasonable quality that could facilitate the end of the pandemic. And she thought that idea was hilarious. The problem is that the UK already has it. And in fact, the UK, you can like every day, I think you've accessed about seven tests for free. So, but Saki thinks that's hilarious. Speaking of coronavirus, Omicron is in 17 states now. That's why I'm always a little, a little reluctant when a lot of people are kind of doing the thing where, well, we're, we're reacting to it too precipitously because, you know, we we don't. There's only three cases. Well, you know, you don't know. It could spread very fast. And my prediction for a very long time is we're not done with the variants, and some of the variants could get worse. And we need to be thoughtful about it because what if we do get a variant that really affects kids? That's the that's the big one that we have avoided thus far. And I don't know if there's a reason to think that that will happen anytime soon. But that's the one that I'm kind of always have my eye on. So I'm not always as quick to dismiss these things as non-issues. But this one, I know because of the racist travel bans, we might actually get accurate information from our public health officials because they don't want Omicron to be bad now. Once Biden did the stupid move of the ineffectual racist travel bans where he banned travel from African countries, some of which don't even have direct flights to the United States, very few of them, when the virus was also in Europe and Canada, and he didn't ban travel from those places, um, he's got to figure out a way to undo it without just saying, may a culpable made a mistake. But the fact that it's in 17 states shows you that Biden failed in terms of shutting down the virus, which is what he promised to do. He said at least 10 occasions, I will shut down the virus. And he's not done that. Um, Donald Trump said that Joe Biden should leave office for failure to shut down the coronavirus. And Trump is right based on the standards that were set by Joe Biden. Joe Biden's own standards suggest that he should be out. So Trump is correct to make this point and he should make it over and over again because that was what Biden promised he would do. You have to acknowledge the things Biden promised he would do, jumpstart the economy, shut down the virus, unify the country. He gets an F, an F, and an F minus on those three. So, and that is looming large over Democrats and their prospects in 2022 and eventually 2024, is how much do they want to have Joe's back and how much do they want to flee the sinking ship. And the White House staff is uh, certainly in the fleeing the sinking ship camp, it appears. There's a story the other day uh, on how an ex-staffer called Kamala Harris, a bully, 
and unload soul-destroying criticism for what? She doesn't even do anything. What does she get done? Nothing. So you get soul-destroying criticism from someone who does what? Um, I mentioned I was going to bring up some New York and California craziness. The The first one is coronavirus-related. New York City is the first place that will mandate coronavirus vaccines for all private sector employees, not just public sector. But private sector employees, this is the, the, they will have the most stringent. Let's play 1A, Mr. Paul. This is de Blasio at a press conference. Go ahead. Bottom line, I've said we have been climbing the ladder. As we have climbed the ladder, good things have happened. More and more people have gotten vaccinated. The city got safer. We were able to bring back people's livelihoods and jobs and the life of the city. We need to keep that going. So today we're going to be announcing uh, some additional measures to keep New Yorkers safe. And I'm going to remind everyone, job number one. Pause. Mayor, first, first of all, the irony, I can't, I can't resist. He says New York's gotten safer. Um, according to NYPD data, New York is actually 11% less safe this year than last year when it comes to actual crime. But when it comes from the virus that we have a lot of information about and we have solid vaccines that some people are getting, some people aren't, it's up to them. And we're still wearing the stupid masks in a lot of cases. Um, I've noticed something. There is a new policy now in uh, the, the Los Angeles. Um, cause I've got some family out there. They're telling me that, and I have a friend um, who has got a son and plays high school hoops. Um, they're now, the the kids are, there's not a joke, they're literally supposed to wear the masks under their chin during the game. And you can see it. If you uh, hunt around for uh, photos of prep basketball right now in L.A., I don't know what that protects. I don't know uh, what uh, orifice is underneath your chin, but that's where you have to have it. I assume you could pull it up at some point, but what's that going to do? Kids are running around on a basketball court, perfectly healthy, not good vectors of the virus. Need a mask under their chip. So anyway, but the irony of de Blasio saying that New York is getting safer, what's getting less safe. Uh, go on, continue. This is the biggest crisis, not only of our time, of the history of New York City. We cannot let COVID back in the door. Worse than 9-11. These measures today will make a big difference. First of all, with the key to NYC, extremely effective program has been uh, respected and uh, emulated around the country. It needs to be more, honestly. It's something that should be used in more and more places. Well, right now we require all employees and patrons. That that arrogance is just worth, worth pausing on for a second. That his insane policy that makes New York so unappealing. New York is crime-ridden. New York is getting filthier. New York is getting more stratified in terms of a place for uh, the extremely poor, the extremely, extremely, extremely rich. And he is lecturing the rest of the world. Like, really, this needs to be emulated more. I'm the best, he's saying. Remember, he ran for president and got no support. So don't forget the arrogance that this guy has. Continue. Everyone 12 and up uh, to be vaccinated, at least one dose. That's indoor dining. Uh, fitness, entertainment. That's worked brilliantly. It's been a tremendous success. There were a lot of concern about it at the beginning. In fact, it has been an across-the-board success with very few problems. You know, there's been a few challenges, but not many. So we now are going to deepen that effort by requiring all employees and patrons uh, to have from 12 years old and up uh, two doses. And that will take effect on December 27th. Because the idea is Everyone by that point who has gotten their first dose, if you've gotten your first dose uh, by now, you're going to be able to get your second right, dose that's by good. then. That's good. We got that's a, fine. Uh, so a 12-year-old can't get a, get a sandwich or a, f- a strawberry phosphate at a restaurant unless you get two doses. 
totalitarianism, it is worse than the virus by a mile. This is not a position that is actually getting overwhelming support, even Democrats at this point. Here's Governor Kathy Hochul of New York. Play 2A, Paul. As I've stated from the outset of my administration, I believe that where necessary, there should be a statewide approach. But when not necessary or we're waiting for more data, that we can have a more uh, surgical approach to dealing with the pandemic. And what I've empowered localities to do, and New York City is one of the localities within the state of New York, just as Erie County is, encouraging local leaders to do an assessment of their situation and to take the actions they deem necessary. So, yes, the mayor did call me before he announced it. We have had a very good relationship in terms of sharing our ideas and what we plan to do, and so no one is blindsided, so I was aware of this. And I support the local government leaders to execute the policies to fight COVID as they think, as they believe. Uh, All right. So, 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 so that, that's, that's her saying, I'm not, I'm not going with the Blasio. I'm not doing the universal uh, vax mandate to this degree. Uh, California had an eatery. We mentioned this at Breitbart News, a.k.a. restaurant that kicked out cops um, because they wanted to provide a safe space. It was in San Francisco where cops are the thin blue line between total chaos and that city that is, again, uh, no middle class there, only the uh, homeless guy shooting up on the street in their own excrement or people who can afford to pay for million-dollar home cash. That's it. That's the whole city now. Uh, by the way, Victor Davis Hanson in his book, The Dying Citizen, which we're just starting to release clips of my really long-form interview with him of that, uh, which, of course, we will have the whole thing on the show um, when we'll decide how to roll that out. He talks about how it is absolute death to a society when you don't have a middle class. And we're experimenting with no middle class in our major cities, San Francisco and New York in particular. L.A. is so spread out that there's still going to be a middle class in L.A. to some degree. But our, our major cities, San Francisco and New York, are seeing where you cannot afford to live there unless you're incredibly wealthy. But there's also uh, a way to just barely survive in your own filth if you're poor. And that's the city. That's that's they're trying. They're trying that. So it, it doesn't work, but they're going to try it because they have no way to stop it now. The train has left the station. But this eatery said that there was a mistake. Yeah, maybe the national attention that they got. The owner of Hilda and Jesse restaurant san francisco's north beach area joseph zira apologized and he apologized for the actions taken by he quote he kind of passed the buck to his staff managers yeah only after the massive international backlash um the cato institute which i don't love because i think they do a lot of open border stuff um but they had a study that just came out a couple days ago stating that california was the 48th most free state hawaii was 49th new york was 50th it's still striking to me, having spent a lot of time in all those places, how in, in New York in particular, in New York, I know upstate New York is quite beautiful, but New York is, you know, not particularly nice and it's got some harsh winters. I mean, in New York City where people congregate, like, I, I just seems like lifestyle-wise, just seems very tough in a pandemic to want to be there. California and Hawaii, at least you can say that, well, you know, the weather's 75 degrees during the winter. So you could see how some people might be attracted to that. But you guys in New York City, you got to give me a buzz and give me an update on how you're doing. Um, I can't tell you how many people got out of New York City that are in my life during the pandemic. My sister lived there. She moved out. John Carney, he moved out. Uh, my book editor moved out. There's just so many people just just got out, and I can't think of anyone who moved there, like moved to New York City. This goes on. I, I know you know someone. You all do who was in New York City and got out. 
Speaking of California, top American scientists are alarmed at the woke math curriculum out in California. You can read that article at Breitbart. I won't summarize it here for the time being. Fredo Cuomo is out of his SiriusXM show. Um, he quit, and I get the impression the folks here in SiriusXM weren't, um, weren't too unhappy about that, given what's going on with him. Uh, a survey that is out now showing that only 2% of Hispanics embrace the term Latinx or Latinx, and 40% say it's bothersome or offensive. Really, anglicizing something for the sake of woke American leftists, that I can't imagine why that would be bothersome. Oh, wait, yes, I could have told you it's bothersome because I use my brain instead of just trying to figure out what is woke agenda setting. Uh, but I like it. You guys know I love to say Latinx, and I love to say Latinx. It's fun. It's fun to say. I hope it sticks around for a while because it's fun to mock. But it seems like the uh, uh, the the consensus is people are not into it. The taking away the genders is actually distorting the language in a way that just fits the agenda of the far left in America. Um, I spent a lot of time yesterday talking about the Crumbly family and how they are uh, they've been arrested for their perhaps their role in their son's shooting up of a Michigan school. Now, Michigan school officials could be charged as well in this Oxford school shooting. Uh, I'm interested in that. I'm, I'm up for holding everyone accountable. I think the parents, to me, probably share more of the blame than the school. But um, I, I'm interested. We'll post you. We'll keep you posted on that too. And last one to introduce for the time being is Congressman Nunes will retire from Congress to join Donald Trump's new social media company, um, which also just announced a big deal with Rumble. Um, I kind of like Rumble. The podcast is on Rumble, by the way. Um, but Congressman Nunes is going to leave Congress, which is sad because he was probably going to be the top guy to control the Ways and Means Committee after next year. Uh, but kind of, I'm sure he got an offer. He can't refuse probably the chance to make untold amounts of money if Trump's social media endeavor goes well. So I have not spoken to Congressman Nunes about it. I will do so, I'm sure, soon, and I will report back anything that is reportable, and I'll ask him about it on the show next time he's on. Um, so probably a loss for the Congress, but I think it's potentially a good thing for Trump's social media brand, which I'm, I'm rooting for, for obvious reasons. So we'll see how that goes. All right, that's it for now. Let's take a break. We'll come back. I'm Alex Marlowe. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's noticed, but everything is getting expensive. We're in the biggest economic crisis since 2008 with a government that's printing trillions and trillions of dollars. Consumer prices are the highest we've seen in 30 years. Inflation is certainly here to stay. And if the government continues its out-of-control printing and spending, the dollar could continue its freefall and lose its coveted role as the world reserve currency. So how do you protect your money, your retirement, your savings? Well, American Hartford Gold can show you how to hedge your hard-earned savings against inflation by helping you diversify a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. They'll even help move your existing IRA or 401k out of the volatile stock market and into a precious metals IRA. And they make it easy. They're the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus from the Better Business Bureau and they have thousands of satisfied clients. And if you call them right now, they'll give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 866-670-7660. That's 866-670-7660 or text ALEX to 65532. That's 866-670-7660 or text ALEX to 65532 for American Hartford Gold. 
right, today's guest is Mark Meadows, who does have a book out called The Chief's Chief, which uh, we were observing has one of the rare books with no subtitle. Almost all the books have a big subtitle. I had a big subtitle in my book, Um, but he has a new book out, and he does break down his time as White House Chief of Staff, and it's an interesting conversation, partially because you can tell Mark Meadows is a good guy and his heart's in the right place, but it just, I thought the Trump administration's last year sounded, I think, probably even more chaotic uh, coming out of the interview than I thought going in. And I get into things with him like why Fauci wasn't fired and what was the thinking while the riots were taking place over the summer of 2020. And his answers were compelling. We'll just say that and we'll leave that there uh, for you guys to check it out. But definitely a must-listen interview. Let's roll it. Mr. Meadows, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. It's great to join you and all the patriots. And obviously, thanks for always bringing a, a, a voice of, of straight talk to the American patriot. It's great to join you. Yeah, that's very nice of you with kind words. Um, I, and we have a lot to get to in the book. Um, and I, I want to start with overall the fact that the media controls so much of the way Donald Trump is perceived and probably more so in the last year of, of his administration than any other year. Uh, so let's just start with a couple of things that you found were, I think, probably frustrating in terms of what people knew about what was going on that last year, very tumultuous year, not just an election year, but a year where we saw riots, a year where we had the pandemic. It really was pretty dramatic, maybe the most dramatic of any of the years of Trump's administration. Uh, let's just start with some things that you feel like were really essential to communicate to the public we kind of missed while we were going through it. Well, I think probably you've said it well that what happens is the mainstream media and and those in the elite left, uh, you know, a lot of them want to call them progressives, but they're they're leftist socialists want to portray uh, a Donald Trump is is not having a good work ethic, is not having a, a decisive uh, spirit when it comes to making the the hard choices. And and what I found in the White House and what I outline in the book is just the opposite. Uh, I mean, he about worked me under the table each and every day. And you're right on those issues, uh, you know, where we had riots in in the streets of many U.S. cities across the country. Uh, I outline that in the book where the president was offering help with the National Guard to come in. And and time after time, Democrat uh, governors would turn him down. I mean, that happened in Oregon. It happened in uh, Minnesota. It happened in uh, Wisconsin, as we know. And and uh, and yet you had a president who believed in uh, law and order. You had a president who candidly wanted to stand up for our men and women who are first responders. And uh, many times the, the media would portray it in just the opposite way. So what would be, I mean, law and order is a great one to to get to, because I know that this was something that, at least according to media reports, was really hotly debated how the White House would deal with uh, some of the rioting that was taking place throughout the country. Uh, what, what was the debate like internally? Because there was a lot of discussion of whether or not the federal government should have a bigger role in uh, putting down some of the riots. I think ultimately it was decided not to do that. Uh, could you take us into some of those conversations? Yeah, so um, I, I outline some of that, and and uh, Portland's probably the prime example. Uh, you know, when you don't want to declare martial law and everything, but at the same time, you can't allow your cities to burn, whether it's Washington D.C. or Portland, Oregon. And uh, and what we found was is that uh, 
uh, with the National Guard, uh, we would offer that many times to uh, to governors. They would reject it. And only when there was a sustained effort and uh, where federal assets came involved uh, uh, would would we actually move forward. We did that without the National Guard in uh, in Oregon, so we were able to accomplish it with some of our other federal law enforcement folks from DHS. But, you know, the interesting thing there is, is and it, it, it was so uh, poorly reported, uh, they were attacking not only uh, uh, federal facilities, but local facilities as well. And, uh, and the narrative was that they were the peaceful protesters. They were throwing bottles and they were throwing all kinds of stuff and, you know, shooting lasers. We had so many uh, law enforcement officers that were getting hurt. And uh, and yet the president uh, was was very forthright and very proactive in trying to make sure we could do everything uh, we could do without declaring, you know, uh, uh, invoking the Insurrection Act. Uh, And and uh, and it is a fine balance. I mean, obviously, as freedom loving Americans, we want to make sure that it's our local law enforcement, not the federal government that enforces things. But when we see local prosecutors and we see local governors and mayors who uh, essentially turned a blind eye to everything that was going on, uh, it only exacerbates the problem. And, and we're seeing that with the waves of you know, of mob robbery that's happening in, in New York and California and other places. When they ignore the law, uh, that's what happens. And so the president was always wanting to make sure that we showed that we respected law and order and that we were there uh, to protect uh, and have the backs of our, our men and women in blue. I want to learn a little bit more about the virus response and what the thinking was inside the White House also relative to the media coverage of it. Because uh, looking back on it, the president's virus response had some some weaker moments. But overall, he got a lot of stuff right, and the media was never going to give him credit for that. I imagine that was very frustrating, but the frustration is not really the point. The point was you guys had a lot of message you wanted to convey um, and did you always feel like you were able to do that effectively? I know the strategy was to do the daily press briefings, which, you know, I think ended up turning into a fiasco a lot of the times. Uh, this just must have been a really tough needle to thread to be able to get the right information to the right people. Uh, can you look <laughs> back on that and see any? Uh, the, the, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> well, well said, Alex. I mean, when you look back, uh, you know, I, obviously I brought on Kaylee McEnany. She was one of the best hires that we had you know, able to handle uh, the hostile media from uh, from the podium. And yet uh, what we found was is even in our transparency, even in trying to say, well, this is a legitimate concern, uh, you know, the the mainstream media wanted to come back and say, well, that's got to be Donald Trump's fault. It's, uh, it's you know, everything is always the president's fault, uh, according to them. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, when, when we had our task force meetings, when we had individual meetings within the Oval, uh, the president had one, uh, one primary focus is how do we make sure that we get therapeutics to the American people quickly? How do we not create panic and how do we create a supply chain that actually gets there? And and you're right. He did unbelievable and miraculous work throughout all of that. And yet there was, you know, the, the COVID counter ticker on, you know, CNN and others where, uh, you know, all they wanted to do is say that, you know, every particular uh, death was, 
the, because of the president's inaction. If anything, he was acting uh, um, in a, such an unbelievable, proactive way, uh, especially when it came to therapeutics. I know there's been a lot, and I put in the book about uh, uh, Operation Warp Speed and, and how he was able to get a vaccine in, in record time in opposition to what Dr. Fauci would say and and ultimately, uh, Dr. Fauci was proven wrong. But even with that, he was pushing very hard early on for therapeutics and, and trying to make sure that that message was one uh, that got to HHS. And uh, the sad part about it from a communication standpoint is the daily briefings, uh, you know, reporters kept looking more for uh, what was not being told and to try to be uh, uh, good stewards of information getting out to the American people. And uh, and it quickly devolved into an us versus them kind of mentality. Uh, in retrospect, uh, having Dr. Fauci have less of a role would have been uh, more appropriate. I think uh, in ways uh, the media made him out to be the, the hero of the COVID uh, response. Uh, when he was just one factor in many uh, many advisors that was advising the president, uh, was there any deep discussion of Fauci getting fired or getting removed from his post at any point? Because I can tell you, speak on behalf of conservative media, a lot of us pretty much were fed up with him by you know late spring, and he's still there now. Yeah, so there was a lot of discussions early on uh, and even later on in terms of uh, asking Dr. Fauci to use his talents elsewhere, uh, primarily because uh, he would go uh, on TV and say things that that either had not been discussed in the task force or were opposite of what we had recommended or you know, they didn't characterize the discussion properly. Uh you know, in the end, some of his voice, even though it was a contrarian voice and not necessarily uh, always uh, uh, in line with with some of the other advisors, uh, the decision was made in in spite of a few uh, people recommending that uh, he be terminated uh, to let him stay on. And that's when Dr. Atlas, Dr. Scott Atlas, was brought in uh, to provide uh, a different uh, perspective. And, uh, and and I can tell you that, that in that, that's kind of the way the president makes decisions is even with people he disagrees with, letting them make decisions, letting them come in to, uh, to actually give their opinion and then trying to uh, discern the truth out of that and make very quick, decisive decisions on behalf of the American people. So if if there were discussions that went on, why ultimately was a decision made to keep Fauci in his spot? Because I think in retrospect, that's certainly one where uh, we certainly have had enough Fauci, I think, at this point in time. And yeah, I like think we, all we of us are fauci out. I know I, I yeah. am uh, as well. And, and I put in the book, you know, just some of the inconsistencies that I found with Dr. Fauci's advice, where in private he would say something and, and in public he would say uh, something else. And I think the, the uh, you know, obviously had some allies within the West Wing. Uh, at the end of the day, um, I think there was a decision that, you know, his his background with NIH and his insight uh, uh, firing him right before a November 3rd election uh, perhaps would send the wrong message, uh, you know, that that we're not taking science uh, seriously, which 
there was nothing further from the truth. We wanted science to dictate our decisions, but also understand that freedom and liberty was something that needed to be preserved. Uh, the lockdowns, the, the, the uh, you know, 15 days to slow the spread sure. uh, was very problematic because we're still in partial lockdowns uh, across some of the country, as you well know. And uh, it was it was balancing those out and trying to make sure that we didn't make Dr. Fauci the issue as much as we made the policy the issue. Uh, Mark Meadows is with me, former White House chief of staff, who has a unique perspective, or I guess maybe one of two uh, in terms of being able to see the whole scope of the final year of the Trump administration. A fascinating look at it. And uh, there's a lot of specifics I want to get to. But uh, uh, before I get back to a couple of those, uh, give me one thing from President Trump that you think that you learned during your time with him that really impressed you that you feel like the, the American public doesn't fully get. Uh, the one thing that impresses me is his willingness to go right to the source of the problem, no matter how difficult that is, whether that's with a reporter going straight to uh, Jim Acosta and confronting him or whether that's going to Vladimir Putin or President Xi or, uh, you know, I, I outline in the book, uh, you know, when we were having uh, oil that was actually going down to zero and below uh, we were going to lose thousands of jobs. You know, obviously you want moderate oil prices and good gas prices, uh, but yet when it goes to zero, you you have this whiplash where you lose jobs and ultimately then uh, it will result in higher gas prices long term. And and he uh, picked up. He said, you know, let's get Vladimir Putin, let's get the King of Saudi Arabia on the line, and negotiated directly with the two of them. Uh, in in real terms. I mean, I was learning the art of the deal in real ways. But what the American people don't understand is is that he is willing to go the I mean, right into the belly of the beast uh, to uh, to work on their behalf. I got to see that time and time again. Uh, And and he does that uh, with unbelievable courage that uh, that I can only marvel at. Uh, the other thing that I, I think uh, the American people might not know is, is he's got a great sense of humor. Uh, you know, even even in difficult, stressful times, he's got a great sense of humor. Yeah, I've always said this. I've interviewed him a number of times over the years, though not recently, and it's very he's definitely has some of the best comedic timing on the planet, period. And uh, it's something that the media <laughs> sort right. You're says, exactly right. Yeah, sir. Certainly, I'll never get credit for that. Uh, what was the toughest part of the job? I, and what was something that, and maybe not on a general level, but what was the task you liked least, or maybe something that uh, was frustrating, uh, maybe with the president or as someone else in the White House? Uh, give us some insight in terms of like being a human being in a role like that is you know not exactly relatable uh, to, to the rest of us in the audience. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think the frustrating thing is is that you've got. Uh, all kinds of very, very accomplished people in the West Wing. And, and uh, with those accomplished people come a, a number of different personalities, uh, a number of different opinions. And uh, uh, just like you mentioned with Dr. Fauci and whether he should remain or not remain and how you do, the, the questions were so complex. And yet you had so many different people that would actually try to weigh in and you know, uh, the other thing that I would find is is that, uh, you know, once the president made a decision, you know, for me, that was the decision that was made and we needed to implement it. There were a number of people who would try to go and and, and uh, indirectly uh, revise the decision, uh, get him to rethink the decision. And so those advocacies uh, is something that I hear every White House has, but it was one that uh, – 
was uh, frustrating to me as I saw it because it was, uh, you know, he was the 45th president of the United States. He made a decision. It was our job uh, to make sure that we got things done uh, efficiently, legally, and uh, as quickly as possible. And yet um, he had a number of people working against him, not uh, some in the West Wing, uh, but certainly many in the administration. Why were those people kept around? I mean, did you have the authority to remove them? And if so, uh, why was it so difficult to do so? Yeah, so some of those uh, we we did move out, and uh, you know there was a few a uh, few people that you know we found that were leaking to the press and so forth, and so we immediately moved them out. Uh, some of those uh, you know were a lot more covert in their efforts, and I think that's a great question. You know, if if they're doing that, why don't you get rid of them? Well, uh, you know, a lot of times the the advocacy took place in, you know, very covert or subtle ways or back channel ways. And so you knew it was happening. But, you know, if you if you tried to say, well, you know, uh, you you were advocating directly to the president on this particular aspect, uh, you know, there was always the plausible deniability. And so uh, so when there was concrete evidence of somebody subverting the president, uh, we we did. uh uh, make those tough choices, uh, which also included, obviously, cabinet members as well. And so we would uh, uh, ask uh, people to, uh, you know, we moved people out of the West Wing. We, we moved uh, and fired people from the administration. Uh, uh, and, and, and in doing so, I think probably the biggest thing is, is uh, the president said this, and I put this in the book, you know, Mark, I wish we knew then what we know now. And that is, is you got to be a lot quicker to fire and a lot slower to hire. And uh, and I think that would have served us uh, better. Yeah, a great lesson for anyone, wherever you work, in whatever field you're in. Mark Meadows, again, White House Chief of Staff under President Trump. His new book, The Chief's Chief, is out today. And obviously a lot of super interesting firsthand stuff uh, in here. We'll have the last one for today because I want to respect your time. I, I want to get a sense of after the election, which was very chaotic. Um, regardless of whether you think that there was, you know, literal cheating or merely sort of figurative manipulation there, I can, I'm sure no one in the white house was uh, convinced everything was legitimate that had gone on. And yet you still had this task of trying to figure out if there's anything that could been, could be done and govern the country during the middle of a crisis and potentially move towards a, a a shift in the administration. That just must have been utter chaos. Can you give us some insight? Can you take us into the rooms? Yeah. So, um, you know, it was you're right. All three things had to happen at the same time. Uh, you know, I, I point out that not only were there allocations of, of fraud uh, and fraud happening in in certain areas. Uh, Not only was there uh, additionally uh, laws within individual states that we believed were unconstitutionally uh, adhered to where they weren't laws at all. They were basically edicts from Supreme Courts, uh, you know, extending deadlines. So you had to deal with that. Uh, at the same time, run the country, make sure we kept people stay safe. So we actually had, you know, three different groups uh, that would work on it. Uh, I assigned one of my deputies to work on uh, on uh, the the uh, transition. Uh, you know, as we looked at at transitioning over, so you would have 
have a, a deputy who was working on that. Uh, you know, I stayed actively involved in trying to make sure that, you know, uh, our enemies didn't take advantage of, of our situation. And then certainly trying to make sure that the, the president was fully informed with his campaign team, with his lawyers and with everything that was dealing uh, with uh, the uh, the election and making sure that election integrity was number one. It's not just about vote count. It's just making sure that our fundamental uh, process of making sure that it's easy to vote and hard to cheat uh, is supported. And so uh, working, you know, obviously there were lots of attorneys and lots of different uh, opinions coming and going. Uh, and, and it was uh, a, a, a chaotic time, uh, mainly because you had so many tasks trying to get done at the same time. Uh, and uh, in, in retrospect, I think probably the, the biggest concern uh for many people is, is um, you know, why was there not uh, more work done on the front end in terms of, of some of the mail-in ballot uh, initiatives and the violation of state laws that were there? Uh, President Trump outlined that, uh, called on that very early on. And uh, uh, even now, what we need to do is make sure that the ballot box is sacred and uh, look at this in, in states, not just where President Trump was declared the winner uh, or loser, uh, but but across the states to make sure that uh, the American people, your listeners right now, can uh, vote with confidence and believe uh, indeed that it is uh, it is only the legitimate votes that will be counted. Mark Meadows, the book is The Chief's Chief. I hope you come back soon. Thanks so much for joining me on Breitbart News Daily. Thanks, Alex. Great to be with you. Take care. Yeah, I couldn't help but get the sense that it just seemed like the headwinds for the Trump administration, not just ones that were imposed on them by the virus and by the media, by the circumstances, but also what was happening inside of the West Wing at the time, uh, were just so big to overcome all that. And considering that the left, meanwhile, was working and trying to change all these rules, ostensibly due to the coronavirus to make it easier to cheat by mail, um, uh, you certainly see how the last year ended up not going according to plan. Um, but interesting stuff and definitely appreciate the time and hope uh, Meadows comes back and we can talk some more. Today, our call of the day was an interesting one. Uh, we brought up the story that has been uh, one of our sort of mini obsessions at Breitbart, uh, which is what's happening for this trans swimmer. Uh, in the University of Pennsylvania, a, a, a individual who now goes by uh, Leah Thompson, but this person was actually a, a male up until, I don't know, a year ago, I think it was. So uh, he swam as a male for three years and now is swimming as a woman and is breaking all these records, uh, winning a race by 38 seconds, just competing against women. So now a man is holding a bunch of women's records, someone who is just, just recently a man and is biologically a man. And this story has come up time and time again at Breitbart News in a broader sense, but this specific story tracking the quote unquote Leah Thompson um, is been a, I think something where the dam maybe could break because it's just getting ridiculous that women are not only not winning in races where this male swims against them, they're getting their butts kicked 
And it's been interesting to watch and to see the total lack of interest, aside from alternative media, into this conversation. And a caller today, Brian from New York, brings this up, as well as some of the draconian uh, rules that are being put in place in New York. And uh, I think I'm able to tie together a few dots in response. Let's roll it. I don't know why the women continue to do this to themselves. Jump in the water, and every one of them should tread water for 20 minutes in every event. So this gets exposed on a national level. So more people go, what the hell is going on here? We're all weenies now. No, we're I a nation of weenies. Yes, this is why. why they... because, because we're a nation of weenies and no one stands up for anything anymore. We just do what we're told. We're being told from our very young to all be conformists, to all listen to authority, to not question authority, to do what our betters tell us, to do what the authoritarians tell us to do. We're getting conditioned. We've been getting conditioned. And this is my, the fight of my life. This is what I've been in since the very beginning is to reject the idea of authority unless they prove that they have a legitimacy. And that's not what we're doing now. If some if the University of Pennsylvania tells you, even though you're a woman, you're swimming with a man on your team and your man is going to beat you and you're going to suck it up, then most people are going, okay, I guess that's how it is. They will not take a bold stand because none of their parents are out there saying that, hey, you should do exactly what Brian in New York says. Uh, but they should. You're right, Brian. But we're not going to. And this is the real crisis. We have a crisis of we're raising a nation of weenies who won't do anything to fight for their rights and for their freedoms. We won't even take our stupid masks off. Kids wearing the mask under their chin. They should all stop it. Literally, just take it off, throw it on the ground, make a big statement. You'll be a champion in conservative media. You'll be a champion for anyone who likes freedom. And eventually we have to assume it's going to work because if it doesn't work, then we're not going to have a society. We're just going to have this freak show, which is what we've had for the last couple of years. Sorry to go on a rant, but it's important. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm glad you did because you ran a spot on. And, and the problem we have is our men need to start being men again and stand up for our women because at the end of the day, it's our women and our girls that are always negatively, negatively impacted by this crap. Yeah, of course. At no point does a, does a girl say, hey, I'm a boy, and then decide to go run in a boy's track meet and obliterate all the boys' records. But what happens here is our girls are negatively impacted by this. Yeah. Alex, I could have scored 4,000 points in girls' basketball. Like, it would have been ridiculous. But at some point, we need to stand up for our girls. And ironically enough, feminism is hurting our girls because we're treating these men as though they're actual women and pretending. And then our actual women are hurt by it. Absolutely. It's, it's of frustrating. Oh. Yeah, yeah, but I, I just want to echo this point that, that women, of course, are sure. the hardest hit. What do you think of the person who finishes second and now instead of getting to win and getting to experience what it's like to win has to lose to a man? That That is where feminism uh, is right now. That is now the definition of feminism is letting women get their butts kicked by men in, in girl swimming. So uh, I hope you're proud it's left. Not, yeah, but it's not even so much that you lost. Look at those girls in Connecticut. They lost to that kid in track meets and those girls that one girl did. She, she would have had state records. She had them taken away from her because a guy beat her. And she from what I understand, if I'm not mistaken, she lost out on a scholarship. We're stupid. We're collectively stupid right now. And we take people like J.K. Rowling who say the truth and we just ostracize them because we want because we take a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a minority and we cater to them and make everybody conform to them. And that actually kind of ties into what I initially called in. The rest of New York State is being completely dictated by these little dictators. I actually never thought I would wish for Andrew Cuomo back, but I think she's worse. I want to know, what role did she have in that nursing home scandal? Yeah, no, well, this is the whole thing, is that when you oust people, and 
I've known this from the beginning because Breitbart, I mean, we have a lot of scalps, so to speak, of terms of people, politicians, et cetera, media figures who have lost their jobs because of our reporting. It's just something that, you know, good reporters, it, it, it happens. Uh, but it is interesting that even though it's always very exciting when someone who is one of your villains is uh, has their careers on the bricks because you've exposed some truth about them, it, it, they never get replaced with anyone better, Brian. Like you never get a, a you, you're not going to get, um, you know, Donald Trump or Ted Cruz to, to, to get the governor's mansion <laughs> in New York. You're going to get someone at least as bad as Cuomo. And it's just something to always keep in mind. And we would be in, a, in the exact same position nationally if Biden were to leave as New York state is right now. But this, the thing with Hochul that gets me with the, with the, um, with the nursing home thing is Will Cal references this all the time. There's that scene in the movie casino where there's somebody who scammed all the, the slot machines and the guy in charge didn't realize they were hitting over and over again. And finally De Niro is like, look, that guy's either too stupid or he's in on it, but either way he's got to go. And I feel yeah, like that's right. the case with her. She either didn't know what's happening or she was in yeah. on it, but either way, what, what, where were you? Yeah, that's a great scene. It's one of my favorite scenes. That's a really good one. Uh, Good call, Brian. Appreciate it. Utterly amazing. The insanity that we are going through. And uh, a heart breaks for all of the girls who are going to have to suffer at this point while we work this stuff out amongst ourselves, which hopefully we will do in the near future. All right. Thanks to Paul D'Amelio and Greg Eben, our producers, and Robert Marlowe, who helps me select topics. And again, thanks to all of you who were telling folks about the show. We're not doing any advertising at this time. So uh, the more uh, you spread the word, the better we do. And I appreciate that very much. We'll talk to you tomorrow for another edition of the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. Mm-hmm.